evidence and answers. The basis of Christianity is found in the authority of Scripture. If we cannot identify what Scripture is, then we cannot properly distinguish any theological truth from error. So how were the books of the Bible put together? And who determined that these books were actually inspired by God? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will address the canon of the Bible. Now with the conclusion of today's study is Pat Zucran. In a previous show, I explained how the books of the Bible were chosen, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And the major criteria for that was authorship. Were they written by a recognized prophet of God? And in the New Testament, were they written by one of the apostles or one of their very close associates? That was the key to the criteria there. And I explained how we got the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament and that the canon is indeed complete. All the books that God wanted are there in the 66 books of the Bible that we have today. Now, often when I'm teaching this seminar, there are those who ask, well, what about the Catholic Bible? In the Catholic Bible, there are 14 extra books. These are called the Apocrypha. Do they belong as part of the inspired canon of Scripture? Those are one of the questions we're going to address today here on Evidence and Answers. Now, are these 14 books, the Apocrypha, are they to be included as part of the Old Testament canon. Well, first let me explain what is the Apocrypha. Well, between Malachi and Matthew, between the Old and New Testament, there is a 400 years of silence. And the Apocrypha are written in that intertestamental period between 400 and the first century AD. And there are about 14 books there. And in the Catholic tradition, these are included as part of the Old Testament canon. Now, here's where I would differ with our Catholic friends here on this particular topic. Here's some reasons why I believe the Apocrypha is not to be part of the Old Testament canon. First, no apocryphal books claim to be written by a prophet. Indeed, that's one of the criteria for inclusion in the Old Testament canon. And even one of the apocryphal books, 1 Maccabees 9.27, the writer there claims not to be a prophet of God. Second, there was no divine confirmation of any writers of the apocryphal books. They were not confirmed by miracles or prophecy as the prophets who wrote the Old Testament or the apostles who wrote the New Testament. Third, there is no predictive prophecy in the Apocrypha, such as we have in the Old Testament books, such as Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Micah 5, 2, which have great messianic prophecies. These are absent from the Apocryphal books. Fourth, there is no new messianic truth in the Apocrypha, so it adds nothing to the messianic truths recorded in the Old Testament. Fifth, even the Jewish community whose books the Old Testament are, acknowledge that the prophetic gifts and the prophetic age has ceased in Israel before the Apocrypha in about 400 B.C. The Jewish Talmud, the commentary on the Old Testament, writes, with the death of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the latter prophets, the Holy Spirit ceased out of Israel. 
Jewish historian Josephus writes this, From Artaxerxes, the 4th century B.C., until our time, everything that has been recorded but has not been deemed worthy of like credit with what preceded because the exact succession of the prophets ceased. So here, the Jewish nation understood that the prophets ceased in about 400 B.C. and the last prophet of the Old Testament there was Malachi. And remember, authorship is key. Inspired scripture needed to be written by a recognized prophet of God. Six, the apocryphal books were never listed in the Jewish Bible along with the prophets or any other section for that matter. Seventh, never once is any apocryphal book cited authoritatively by a prophetic book written after it. Eighth, Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament writers never quote from the Apocrypha. There are hundreds of citations from the Old Testament books, but none from the Apocrypha. They are quoted by Jesus or the apostles. Next, the universal councils for the first 500 years rejected the Apocrypha. They did not consider it as part of the biblical canon. Next, there seems to be teaching in there that is not consistent with previous teachings. The Apocrypha supports the idea of prayers for the dead. 2 Maccabees chapter 12, it states, Thus he made atonement for the dead, that they might be freed from this sin. Tobit chapter 12 teaches salvation by works. It says, a little with righteousness is better than much with unrighteousness. It is better to give alms than to lay up gold. For alms both deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. Those that exercise alms and the righteousness shall be filled with life. But they that sin are enemies of their own life. In Judith chapter 9, the man Judith assists God in a deal of falsehood and trickery. And so we have teachings that appear to contradict previous revelation here. Then there are historical errors in the Apocrypha. For example, Judas speaks of Nebuchadnezzar reigning in Nineveh, but according to history and the Bible, Nebuchadnezzar reigns in the city of Babylon. And finally, Jesus tells us where the Old Testament begins and where the Old Testament ends in Luke 11:51. Jesus states, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. So Jesus in that verse tells you where the Old Testament begins and where it ends. He says that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world. So he tells you where the prophets begin and where they end. He mentions first Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, to Zechariah, the final prophet in Second Chronicles. And in the Jewish Old Testament, they have all 39 books that we have. And the final book is Second Chronicles, not Malachi. Second Chronicles and Zechariah is the last prophet in the last book of the Jewish Old Testament. So Jesus affirms that the Old Testament begins with Genesis and ends 
with the Jewish Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. So the 39 books we have of the Old Testament are the books which Jesus was affirming. He does not affirm or put the prophets of the Apocrypha. He does not include them as part of the Old Testament prophets. So for these reasons, I believe the Apocrypha does not belong as part of the biblical canon or the inspired scripture. Does the Apocrypha have any kind of value? Well, sure it does. It has some historical value and some theological value there. And so they're books to be studied as historical works, but not as inspired scripture. They really were not part of the biblical canon, not until the 16th century AD at the Council of Trent were they included as part of the inspired scripture. And that's because what was happening at that time was the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things that Luther and the Reformers were challenging was indeed some of the teachings coming from the Catholic Church, such as prayers for the dead and purgatory and salvation by works and other doctrines like that. And in order to bolster their case, the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent ratified the Apocrypha as part of the biblical canon. Until then, the Apocrypha was considered historical works, but not inspired scripture. And so for those reasons, I believe the 66 books of the Bible that we have now, Old and New Testament, are the inspired works of God. The Apocrypha, though good historical work and worth reading, is not part of the inspired scripture. Now, another question I often get is, well, what about the secret Gospels? Aren't there other Gospels that were discovered that were indeed to be part of the New Testament canon that tell us a different but the true story of Jesus Christ? Well, those are what we call the Gnostic Gospels. And these Gospels inspired the novel The Da Vinci Code. And you'll see many specials on the Discovery Channel and others. And it makes for interesting shows and people are always intrigued by theories of conspiracy that there are indeed other secret gospels out there that tell really the true story of Jesus Christ and that these gospels were written before the New Testament and somehow through political conspiracy were indeed eradicated from the New Testament canon. So let's take a look at these quote secret gospels. Now the missing gospels or the secret gospels referred to are what are known as the Nag Hammadi texts, discovered in 1946, named after the place they were found on the west bank of the Nile there in Egypt. Now, according to the story, a farmer named, guess who, Muhammad Ali, was digging along the bank of the Nile looking for fertilizer when he came across some ancient books there. Well, he took some home and used them for fire to boil his pot of stew and so several of these ancient texts were unfortunately lost. However, they eventually got into the hands of an antiques dealer who saw that there was something valuable here. So when he went to the site and did further excavations, a library was discovered containing 45 texts written in the Egyptian Coptic language. And they were written, the earliest one dated, it's perhaps the late 2nd century to the 4th century A.D., of the 45 texts that were found, only about a half dozen claimed to be Gospels. 
Examples of the texts that were found include the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Peter, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, and others which you may have heard of through alleged television documentaries uh, that we see on the Discovery Channel here. Now, these documents were not authored by a Christian group, but a group called the Gnostics. Now, our knowledge of the Gnostics came only from the criticism of the church fathers who criticized these Gnostic texts. But in 1946, with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi Library, we actually discovered these Gnostic Gospels and we could read them for ourselves. Now, who were the Gnostics? Well, Gnosticism derives its meaning from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics were a heretical group whose teachings were a combination of Greek philosophy and Eastern pantheism. Gnosticism taught the secret knowledge of dualism, that the material world was evil, and it was only the spiritual realm that was pure. Now, that would contradict the teachings of of the Old Testament. For example, Genesis 1 teaches that God created all things. And when he created the universe, he said that it was good. And although it is fallen, it is valuable to God and one day will be redeemed. It's a rejection of the New Testament teachings that Jesus became flesh, took on a physical body, and that the physical body is good. And also, although fallen, will one day be restored and redeemed. So in Gnosticism, God is not distinct from man. Man is essentially divine. The fundamental problem of man is not sin, but of ignorance. And salvation was attained through attaining the secret knowledge of this Gnostic dualism, that the material world was evil and the spiritual realm was pure. And the goal of Gnosticism was to attain unity or to become one with God through the attaining of this secret knowledge that only the worthy were given. In reference to Jesus, Gnosticism taught that Jesus was not distinct from his disciples. Those who attained this secret knowledge also became a Christ. So that whoever achieves gnosis or knowledge becomes no longer a Christian, but Christ. So since the physical realm is evil, many Gnostic literature taught that Jesus was not really human, and that he really did not die on a cross for sin. They further taught that Jesus shared secret knowledge with only a select few, and that only those with keen insight into these secrets could truly release the divine within them as Jesus has done. Jesus is not the unique Son of God and a Savior, but a teacher who revealed secret knowledge to his followers. So as you can see, Gnostic philosophy and Gnostic teaching is contrary to biblical teachings in almost all major areas. Now these, quote, secret gospels are not so secret. We've known about them for centuries, and they were never considered part of the New Testament canon, as novels like the Da Vinci Code portrays. We've known about these documents for centuries. The early church fathers, Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 200 A.D., and Tertullian, who wrote from 160 to 225 AD, mentioned them in their letters and stated their rejection. The Gnostics rejected early Christianity and the Christians rejected Gnosticism. These texts were not secret. They were never considered part of the New Testament canon. Now remember, to be included in the New Testament canon, 
you needed apostolic authorship. Therefore, you had to be able to date the work within the lifetime of the apostles. When it comes to these Gnostic Gospels, they're dated in the late 2nd and 4th century AD, well after the life of the apostles. So although some alleged to have been written by the apostles, their late dating reveals that they could not have been written by one of the apostles. So their late dating disqualifies them from being part of the canon. Second, they're inconsistent with previous revelation of what Jesus and the apostles were teaching. The teaching of Gnostic dualism is what the Gospels of John and the epistles appear to be warning the early church about and rejecting. For example, 1 John opens with these words, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He is clearly defending here that Jesus Christ did indeed come in physical, bodily form. Why would he open his letter like that? Well, he's probably addressing right away the growing challenge of Gnosticism, which he sees coming over the horizon. In 2 John 7, the apostle writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Well, who could he be talking about there? Well, the Gnostics, because they viewed the material world as evil, many of them rejected the idea that Jesus, the master Gnostic, would take on a body of flesh and bones. This whole idea that the secret teachings are only for a select few goes against the nature of the Gospels and the teachings of Christ, who taught his followers to go and preach his teachings throughout all the world in an honest and open manner. And in his resurrection, Jesus went out of his way to demonstrate that he had risen physically from the grave. John chapter 20, he appears to Thomas and says, Touch my hands, touch my side. In the Gospel of Luke, he eats with his disciples. He's going out of his way to show that his resurrection is not some kind of spiritual resurrection, but indeed a physical resurrection from the dead. Now, even when you read these, quote, secret gospels, these Gnostic gospels, you see that they have contradictory teaching and go against the nature of the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And they do not even sound like apostolic or biblical writing. For example, from the Gospel of Philip, written in the late 3rd century AD, the writer writes this, Light and darkness, life and death, right and left, are brothers of one another. They are inseparable. Because of this, neither are the good good, nor evil evil, nor is life life, nor death death. For this reason, each one will dissolve into its earliest origin. But those who are exalted above the world are indissoluble and eternal. That's quite contrary to what we see throughout the New Testament. Life and death are not in some kind of yin and yang balance here. They are not brothers of one another. Light and darkness, they are not in a balance of one another here. First John 1 John 1.5, John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In fact, Jesus Christ is the life, and one day life shall overcome death. So, in this writing here in the Gospel of Philip, it sounds more like Eastern pantheism than what the apostles wrote about in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, a third century work, writes this. Peter said to him, Since you have explained everything to us, Jesus, 
Tell us this also. What is the sin of the world? The Savior said, There is no sin. But it is you who make sin when you do the things that are like the nature of adultery, which is called sin. Well, that would be very strange. Christ strongly talked about sin throughout the Gospels and that he came and died for the sins of the world. Yet why would he here be teaching there is no sin? It's only of the mind or it's ignorance. That goes against the fundamental teaching of Christ and the apostles. Here we have another one, the Gospel of Peter, written in the 3rd century A.D. And this is the resurrection account. And it's quite different from what we find in the New Testament. It goes like this. The sepulcher opened, and both of the young men entered in. When therefore those soldiers saw that they waked up the centurion and the elders, and while they were yet telling them the things which they had seen, they saw again three men come out of the sepulcher, and two of them sustaining the other, and the cross following after them. And of the two they saw that their heads reached unto the heaven, but of him who was led by them, that it overpassed the heavens. And they heard a voice out of heaven, saying, Hast thou preached unto them that sleep? And an answer was heard from the cross, saying yes. So here at the resurrection scene, according to the Gospel of Peter, three men come out of the tomb, and their necks stretch and go way out into the heavens, and the neck of Jesus stretches and goes out of the atmosphere into outer space. And a voice comes down from heaven, and there's an answer that comes from a walking and talking cross. Obviously, that doesn't coincide with the resurrection account and doesn't sound like a historical event. It sounds more like mythology. And the final one I'll read here comes from the Gospel of Thomas, written in the late 2nd century A.D. Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her a male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, in Gnosticism, because the material world is impure, females were regarded as vile creatures because they produced physical beings for this world. That's why Peter wants the Savior to dismiss Mary. But Peter says, oh, wait a minute. I'll turn her into a man so she too can attain unity with the divine and attain the enlightenment we attain for every woman who makes herself a man will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that goes clearly against biblical teachings. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 says, God made them in his image, man and woman. They are created in the image of God. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you just read these, quote, secret gospels, you'll see that they're of a very different nature than Old and New Testament teachings. So just by reading them themselves, you can see they do not belong as part of the New Testament canon. So the New Testament is complete. Jesus promised it. The apostles confirmed it by their writing the 27 books. The Christian church confirmed it. And the providence of God assures it. Because God always completes what he begins. He preserves the important things he produces. And therefore he would not produce a book for faith and practice of the church of all generations that he did not preserve for all generations. So we have the complete 
revelation from God, from Genesis to Revelation, we indeed have with us the inspired Word of God. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. This concludes Pat's study on the canon of the Bible. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on the lower right-hand side of our homepage. That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available for you there. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers. <laughs>